Our text today is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word in this space. Lord, bless us. Open our heart and our minds and our ears that we may impress these things upon us, that we may carry them with us everywhere that we go, and they may guide us in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good we're talking about judgment today, so I hope you will not judge any of my missteps in the service. But when the kids were little, and I'm sorry, Sophia, today, since you're many of my illustrations, Sophia used to get mad at Kristen and I when we would give parental feedback. We would tell Sophia that there were some behaviors that needed correcting, and she would get really mad at us and say, stop judging me. You're judging me. Don't judge me. And I chuckle about this when I think about it for a few reasons. Not because I am totally insensitive to my children, but because these memories for me are actually pretty fond. And they're fond because I do understand how the kids felt. Nobody likes to be judged. Nobody likes to feel like they are being judged. I experienced this in my other life as a pilot examiner. Many times I have to deliver news to people that they didn't pass their flight exams. I have to judge their flying. I have to evaluate what they do. And then sometimes I have to give them critical feedback. And sometimes they don't take that critical feedback particularly well. But I think it's bigger than just not wanting to be judged. It's that people don't want to feel like, we don't want to feel like, I don't want to feel like that we are being looked down on or that we are being condemned. But it begs a big question. It begs a question, is all judgment bad? Because don't we have to constantly judge things in our lives? With the case with kids, even though they may have felt like they were condemned when they weren't, sometimes leading, which is really what parenting really is, right? It's leading, it's guiding, it's discipling children, requires correction. It requires judgment of actions. When proper guidelines are in place and a child pushes against those guidelines, the hard work of parenting is to bring that child back into appropriate behavior. Parents judge what their kids do. I teach math part-time. I have to judge and evaluate what my students do. Not only do I have to judge and evaluate the work, but I have to judge and evaluate if they are meeting the codes of conduct that the school requires, that my classroom requires. Same as I do in providing FAA flight exams, conducting FAA flight exams. I have to judge and evaluate against a set of standards that the government has preordained that I'm required to follow. So what does Jesus really mean in this passage? Are we never ever allowed to judge? Are we never allowed to criticize? Are we just going along for Mr. Toad's wild ride, buckling in with no ability to question or discern? You all know that when I ask questions like that, they're rhetorical, and the answer is no. 
So that's what I'd like to, to dig into today, what I'd like to look into today. What is judgment and what is judgment not? What does Jesus really mean in these words? Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. I can't say that without thinking it's either King James or New King James. Judge not lest you be judged. That's why reading that verse is a little bit hard. My brain is pre-wired. But this is a particularly well-known verse. This is a well-known verse within the Christian community and outside of the Christian community. And it's such a well-known verse that it gets tossed around many times at inappropriate times when people feel like they are being judged. I can see this scenario kind of play out, right? You've got two Christians, maybe they're meeting over coffee or a beer, maybe in a place kind of like this, who knows? And one of them is convicting the other one of something. He's maybe there to share a concern about something in the other person's life that he's worried about. Maybe it's sin, maybe it's something else. So the discussion gets a little bit heated because there's feelings involved and, and People get upset when they feel like their feelings are being attacked or their feelings are getting hurt. And so may, maybe it's one of these things or both of these things, but there's this feeling like attacks are taking place. And at, at some point, one of the two, two men at this table says, don't you remember Jesus' words? Judge not, that you not be judged. And the other one storms off in anger and slams the door and leaves. And I think this is because we have falsely believed that as Christians, because of this uh, misinterpretation of this verse, or misuse maybe is a better way to say it of this verse, that we're never allowed to criticize anything. We are never allowed to evaluate anything. You could read those words as judge anything. We've, we've almost built it into our brains that the 11th commandment is the most important commandment. The 11th commandment I've heard said by a gentleman, a pastor, that'd be great, thank you, a pastor named Vodi Bakum, he said, the 11th commandment is, thou shalt always be nice. And so we've gotten into this place that we don't want to violate the 11th commandment, that we misinterpret this to think that we can never criticize, that we can never evaluate, that we can never judge anything. But we know that's not to be true. So what does this statement, judge not, that you be not judged, really mean? Because without understanding it, we can't apply it to the rest of the passage, and we can't apply it to our day-to-day -day life. So it's important to remind ourselves when we read Scripture, the audience that, that it was that taking place. So in this particular time, Jesus is speaking to predominantly a, a group of believers. He's speaking to people, to followers, uh, to, to believers. And so just like prayer and fasting and money and anxiety, Jesus is commenting on a problem that is particular in the day with the Pharisees which we're also going to see, because there's nothing new under the sun, is also a problem particular to our day now. But in many legalistic systems, you could think things like socialism today. So in, in these legalistic situations, these legalistic systems, like the Pharisees, legalistic systems are oppressively judgmental. Now, I experienced this in Orthodox Judaism when I was Jewish, that this kind of a oppressively judgmental, legalistic system of you didn't follow the rules well enough, so I look down on you because I follow the rules so much better. So it's this, this kind of this principle of people who look down on others with self-righteous indignation on anybody that either is part of their religious belief system that isn't doing it well enough, or people that aren't part of their religious system that they don't believe are doing it at all. So there's this self-righteousness that we're looking down upon others in this kind of judgmental atmosphere. 
This isn't something that was unique to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were great at looking down on other people, both believers and unbelievers in the time in the first century. This, this is something that we see anytime there is a group of people who develop their own morals or their own religious standards, judgment immediately follows when people don't agree, don't cooperate, don't participate. We see this today. We see this in legalistic versions of Christianity. We see this in the legalistic aspects of things like socialism. We see this in the legalistic aspect of homeowners associations. It's true. We saw a lot of this during the COVID pandemic. So I wanna use COVID as an example of this, this legalistic approach. You see, there were a whole new set of moral and religious standards that were, uh, that were developed during COVID stand. We had a, a new religious leader, Pope Fauci, you probably remember him, that he was the grand poobah of the CDC. We had a whole new set of religious rules, what you had to wear, how close you had to stand to people. And we had blind adherence by a lot of folks. And then if you chose not to participate, what happened? The enforcers came out. They came out to tell you that you were wrong. They judged you, they condemned you. Do you remember the mask police? You guys all remember Mask Police, right? The people, they didn't even need to know you that would be quick to criticize if your face covering that was potentially manufactured in your house, just let that sit in for a second, but your face covering that was manufactured in your home wasn't being worn appropriately. You can take it off when you sit down, but if you stand up to use the restroom, it must be put back on. But you can take it off when you're in the restroom if you're sitting down, but not when you're standing up. And it's preferable if you wear two of these, but not out in public. That only can wear one if it's outside. But if you're inside, then that's a problem. But if you take the inside and put it outside with a covering, then it's all totally fine. You remember this. It was, it was rules, and there were people policing the rules. You couldn't even go into a King Supers without somebody being frustrated and mad that somebody else wasn't adhering to the rules appropriately. Or the six-foot rule. Remember the stickers on the ground? You still go to places now and you can find the, the six-foot separation stickers everywhere. We got a very strong and real-time, in-your-face look at what legalistic religion looks like with COVID. We got to experience firsthand what condemnation looks like in a new religious system if you chose not to participate. See, it doesn't matter if it's the Pharisees with Jewish law, or it's legalistic groups like the Mormons, or it's the COVID police. See, the root cause of, or it's the homeowners association, the root cause of this is always the same thing. It's self-righteousness. The real issue in all of these, with all of these problems with judgment and condemnation, is self-righteousness. See, the Pharisees had placed themselves above others. They were literally looking down on them. Their judgments were condemnations that they were issuing because of their self-righteous religious position. It's the same thing I experienced in Orthodox Judaism. There was a self-righteousness that existed within certain groups of Orthodox Jews that put down and, and looked down upon others that were not as religious as they were. It's the same thing we experienced during COVID. Self-righteous religious followers quick to judge and condemn any misstep against Pope Fauci or the COVID rules. See, this is why it's important to get to the root of the problem with judgment. We all, we've talked about this before. We don't want to treat, uh, we don't want to treat the cause or the symptoms. We want to treat the cause. 
The cause of the problem here is a self-righteous problem, so that's what we need to be addressing directly. And so I want you to file that, that very important piece of information kind of in the front of your brains, this problem of self-righteousness, because it's going to be foundational to how we look at what Jesus is telling us to avoid, but also how we are to approach judgment and criticism of others that we may be called to give as kingdom-minded Christians. So first, Jesus tells us not to judge, and then in verse 2, he tells us why. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is reminding his followers that ultimately, all of us here, we will be judged. There's a misconception at times, I think, about salvation and grace, that once we're saved, that's it. Now, once we're saved, that is it for our salvation. But sometimes we think then, well, that's just it, it's done, I don't have to think about things like my sin or my growth because I got saved, so I'm cool, right? Like, we're good. No more. But the reality is we still have to answer for our sin. We will still be judged for our sin. Just because we are saved from the penalty of our sin doesn't mean that God isn't going to speak to us about our sin. God will still judge us. We are still accountable before Him for our actions. And see, that's really the bigger point. Ultimately, it is God who judges, not man who judges. It is God who carries out all righteousness, because He is the only truly righteous one. And for God to be loving, and for God to be just, He must be able to carry out justice. God cannot be merciful if He is not just. So you see, what happens is when somebody condemns somebody else, when any one of us condemns someone else, we are actually doing something that only God can do. We are acting in a way that only God can act. If we pass self-righteous judgment or condemnation on somebody else, we are playing God. Because if you act self-righteously, you cannot act humbly. Self-righteous people play God. You cannot be humble if you are self-righteous. And that's the warning that Jesus is giving. You will be judged by the judgments you give. You are not to play God. And if you play God, it will not end well. God judges us, both the saved and the unsaved. God is the only final judge, not us. And the reality, family, is when we try to play God, it never, ever works out well, especially not in the long run. But I think there's another part, too. When we're self-righteous, we lack something very important that only comes through humility and faith in God, and that thing is mercy. You see, when we're self-righteous and condemning, it's impossible for us to be graceful and forgiving and merciful. Self-righteousness is the antithesis to grace and mercy. Because when we're self-righteous, we treat ourselves like the authority, like we are the police and we know the rules. And not only do we know the rules, but we shall enforce the rules. That's what we experienced during COVID stand, a lack of mercy, a lack of grace, and a whole lot of condemnation. And we're seeing the effects of that now. People still divide it. Families still divide it. Verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You see, there's another problem when we judge others from this place of self-righteousness, when we condemn them. 
when we do this, we can rarely see the problems, our own sin, the issues that we bring to the table, if we even see them at all. And what's funny is that a lot of times we read this verse and we think this is about a tiny little speck and a really, really big log. But that's not what it really means, because you guys know I love words, and you guys know I love words that are old and in foreign languages. The Greek word that's used here for speck is karphos, and that does not mean a tiny piece of dust or a little dot. It means a small stalk or a twig or a splinter. Some translations actually use the word splinter. This isn't a tiny piece of dust compared to a log. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a splinter in your eye? Once when Sophia was little, this is the second one. Once when Sophia was little, she got a piece, uh, a popcorn kernel cut, caught under her eyelid. She got a popcorn kernel caught under her eyelid. I don't even know how that happened. No, just a, a, a shell, but how still? It's, but she caught this and her eye hurt really bad. And it took us a while before we could get to the person to get it out of her eye. She had an absolutely miserable day, which you were an incredible trooper for. So if you want to know what it is like to have a splinter in your eye, when we're done here during fellowship, ask Sophia what it was like to have part of a popcorn kernel stuck in your eye, and she will tell you it did not feel good. So the, the point of the comparison here is actually that there is something large in their eye and something gigantic in yours. It's not a tiny little thing in the chest. It's something large and then even larger, gigantic. That illustration is pretty clear. The sin of the critic is larger than the one who is being criticized. If you were doing some CFI prep with me, we'd be talking about projection here. Alas. So what this ultimately means is that the self-righteous are blind. They are blind to themselves. It is a sin of blindness. The self-righteous don't see themselves as doing anything wrong, or if they see themselves as doing something wrong, it's much smaller. We talked about that last night at the outpost. It's much smaller, obviously, than that person who's done so much worse than me. They feel that they are above everyone else because they are the perfect adherence to the law, whatever law that may be. That their sin is great because they put themselves in the place of God. Their blindness puts themselves in the place of God. And when one puts them in the place of God, they can no longer see their own sin for what it is. All that they can see is the fault of others and condemn them for it. And I know, because I know you all, but I know that each and every one of us here in this room is guilty of this. Each and every one of us is guilty for doing this, and each and every one of us has experienced this at some point on the receiving end. We have all been self-righteous, and we have all experienced self-righteous people. You see, what happens is the self-righteous trivialize their own sin, and then they magnify the sin of others. It's what leads us to this attitude of condemnation that Christ warns us is only God's place. Jesus is telling them and us that we must self-examine before we do anything else. We must self-examine to the point where we are mortified by our own sinful hearts. See, we must clearly and objectively look at ourselves before we can look at other people. We must see ourselves for what we actually are before we can look at other folks. And what are we? We are depraved sinners. 
Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, I think that part of the reason that we get self-righteous is that our sinful and hard hearts don't actually like being told that they're sinful and hard hearts. We don't like hearing that the heart is deceitful above all things. You see, our, our heart is so deceitful, in fact, that we actually try to pretend that it's not deceitful. Our deceitful heart deceives itself like percent by pretending that it's not deceitful. But this is really the crux. If we don't understand our sin, if we aren't literally mourning our sinful heart, there is no way that we can be humble, and there is no way that we can be in true faith. If we are not convicted of our own sin, then all we do is try to convict other people of theirs. All we do is spend our time self-righteously pointing it out for other folks. But, but, once we are convicted of our own sin, once we are convicted of the ginormous log in our own eye, it totally changes the way we interact with other people. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, when we are self-righteous and not seeing our own sin, we are hypocrites. But when we are convicted of our sin, when we are mourning our sin, when we are weighted down by our sin, it is only then that we can appreciate and understand God's saving grace, his saving mercy, his love for us, his care for us. So we spoke about at forg uh, with forgiveness last night at the outpost. So it's similar there. If we don't understand why we need to be forgiven, what we were talking about last night, that our sin, our status as enemies against God, then we can't appreciate how beautiful the gift of forgiveness is and why we are commanded to forgive. It's really beautiful when you think about it, these beautiful gifts of mercy and grace that God gives us. We can't extend forgiveness without our own understanding of our need for forgiveness. And it's no different with judgment. See, if we place ourselves above other people, if we look down on them for, for either real or perceived offenses, then we aren't looking at our own real offenses. The path of humility is the one that sees the log in your own eye. See, it's with this understanding of our own sin and God's mercy that then we can begin the discussion of evaluating and providing criticism and feedback to other people. See, God's prophets have always been controversial. They have always pushed against the grain. Great reformations don't come out because people sat idly without conviction and without criticism of the establishment. Reformers always have to critique and criticize the things that they need to reform. These things require feedback. They require discernment. They require judgment. And the church today is no exception. So how are we to do this? How are we to provide feedback and judgment and criticism in today's world without violating Christ's command here? Because we all know that we're going to be in positions where we have to correct, where we have to pass judgment, where we have to criticize. Maybe we even have to call someone out. Well, the first step as a citizen of Christ's kingdom is personal awareness. You see, we must approach everything as one who is poor in spirit. Remember that from the Beatitudes? We must approach everything as one who is a servant of someone greater. And we are. We are servants of a great master, Jesus Christ. We must be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness that can only come from God, but it cannot be self-righteousness. We must be people who mourn their sin. We, we must be convicted of our sin so that we can approach our tasks with godly humility. 
And we do this by first confessing our sin. That's why we do it here at church. We confess together publicly. We get on our knees. We make a public profession that we are all sinners. And then we hear an assurance of pardon that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. But it has to be bigger than that. It has to be bigger than just confessing your sin and hearing the assurance of pardon in church. This must be something we do regularly, daily, moment by moment. See, when our sin is confessed and when we have repented and when we have forgiven, that is when we've taken the log out of our own eye. But it is not a one-time process. It is a continual process. That's why it said it had to be done regularly. It had to be done daily. This is something we must do all the time. The regular confessing of our sin keeps us aware of our own deceitful heart and also the assurance of God's pardon and the gratitude that comes with that of knowing that we are forgiven and saved people. That has to be our starting place before we can provide feedback or criticism on someone or something. Because we are going to have to confront people and things in our lives as Christians. Christ confronted people. He wasn't like, hey guys, I don't really like what you're doing here. Would you please stop? The saints who stood firm, the saints who stood, sorry, the saints who stood firm on their faith before us had to confront others. The martyrs who stood firm before us had to confront others. There will be confrontation, there will be conflict, and it will require judgment, and it will require discernment. But we must conduct ourselves in these confrontations from a place of meekness and not a place of pride. We must do it from a place of humble righteousness that is given from God instead of prideful self-righteousness. We must wait to do these things until we've cleaned up our side of the street. And we must only do that, cleaning up our side of the street, by removing the log that is in our eye. See, God has called us as believers to use the wisdom that we have, that we have gained through the knowledge of the Lord, through the fear and the awe of the Lord, to be a discerning people. And this is especially true when we see Christians or we see churches that are in apostasy. See, the problem with this verse is it becomes this blanket statement that's been used to say, we just, don't, we just can't provide any feedback. Everybody's got to leave well. Just be nice. It's that 11th commandment thing again. Under no circumstances be anything other than nice. I might do a Sunday school on the word nice, on where that word came from and how it used to be an insult and how we're not called to be nice people. We are called to be kind people, but there's a big difference between being nice and being kind. We've even, I've even heard this in the church, but as a pastor, aren't you supposed to be unbiased and you can't criticize and the pastor's always supposed to be nice above all else. <laughs> what? Our faith, our scripture, our truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It, it, is, it is full of places where we have to deal with conflict, where we have to deal with persecution, where we have to deal with difficulty. Jesus tells us in John 5.22 that all the judgment was given to the Son. It's not an opinion or a suggestion. It's a statement of truth. And also, nobody's actually unbiased at all. Everybody judges the world around them. Everybody brings presuppositions to the table. The difference, the difference with us is that we are supposed to be aware of our own fallen nature and our own need of grace and our own need of mercy. We are supposed to use the gift that God has given us to be able to be discerning people, 
Our eyes are supposed to be wide open, the logs removed from them, because we're supposed to be self-aware of our own shortcomings. We know as Christians we're called to fight against the powers over this present darkness, Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In this fallen state, we live in a world where there is good and evil, and we have to discern what is good and what is evil. Some of these powers of evil lie within things that call themselves a church. Part of revival and reformation is confrontation, but it is humble confrontation, meek confrontation, godly confrontation. Sometimes you, will not, you won't be able to be nice, but you will still be able to be kind. There's that big difference there. You see, we must be aware and we must fight against false doctrine. Not only is it heresy, which is a big problem, but because it is heresy, it hurts people. It spiritually hurts people. Just last weekend, I had a wonderful discussion with a very nice woman who wanted to stop me and ask why I disliked Joel Olstein and the prosperity gospel. So I don't know if she heard sermons that I've preached or I was wearing my anti-prosperity gospel gospel club hoodie, but she was very concerned that I wasn't giving Joel a fair shot at things. So there were two ways that I could approach this conversation. My sinful heart wanted to climb up on something high, stand above, and rant and rave about how, how much that man is a, char a charlatan, how he manipulates scripture to make promises that end up letting people down, how he steals money from people, how pastors shouldn't have $100 million a year salaries and corporate jets and also the fact by the means in which he received these things. But I didn't. Instead, I prayed for humility and meekness. And I started off by listening to what she had to say. I listened to the things that she had to say, and then I provided my criticism. Now, I didn't change what I said, but I changed when I said it and how I said it. But I still said the same serrated things, but I waited and I listened first. I still gave pointed criticism. I tried to keep it factual, but I didn't condemn. Osteen's got to answer before God just like I do. I'm not responsible for that man's condemnation or his salvation. That's God's place. But I can't help somebody from the snares of the devil if I'm being self-righteous, if I'm being condemning. Wouldn't that make me just like him? That's why one of my favorite verses in the Bible reminds me of the approach that we are called to take, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. It doesn't say don't correct your opponents. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We are called to patiently endure evil, to stay kind, different than being nice. These are important characteristics of the servant of the Lord. We are not responsible for these people's salvation. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Our job is to be deliverers of the truth not executors of condemnation and judgment. 
God will either bring people into faith or he won't. We are called to be consistently truthful people in his word. This is important for revival and reformation because we have the answers. We are on the winning team. We have the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes we're going to be in a position where we have to criticize and provide feedback. So it must be done with a place of godly righteousness, not self-righteousness. It must be with humility and meekness, so it is not condemning. And let's just be honest. Who wants to listen to a self-righteous person? Exactly nobody. How is it that we are ever going to help bring churches and believers who are stuck in apostasy and heresy into sound doctrine? How are we going to shepherd people who aren't in faith yet in sound doctrine if we are being self-righteous? We can't be. We have to be humble and meek when we interact with others. The last verse that we're going to look at should really actually show that the verses that we've studied aren't the blanket statement to not provide any criticism, feedback, or judgment. Because Jesus drops and and says a very firm and direct statement here in verse 6. He says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So to understand this, we have to understand the the, the view of dogs in the first century. In Jesus' time, people did not have man's best friend as their pet. Dogs were considered nasty animals. They ate from gutters. You don't want to know what was in the gutters in the first century. They were scavengers. Some people may have had a dog as a working dog, maybe a shepherding dog to help move animals. But this concept of, like, my dog, the pet, did not exist when Jesus was using this example. So he's talking about the fact that things like what is holy cannot be fed to dogs. Holy food, holy meat, was meat, was food that was consecrated in the holy temple. It was consecrated as a sacrifice in the temple. It would have been unheard of to give a portion of something that was holy to a scavenger that ate out of the gutters. It would have been thought of as a desecration of something holy to do that. It was a similar, similarly, it was the same with swine. See, pigs and swine were, and still are to, to, to Orthodox Jews today, the epitome of uncleanliness. It's a shame because bacon tastes so good. Dogs and swine were considered unclean and nasty creatures. So Jesus is using this as a very pointed illustration. You don't give holy meat to unclean dogs. And you would never allow your beautiful pearls to be trampled under the feet of the most unclean animals there are, swine. Even that word swine kind of sounds nasty, doesn't it? And swine are nasty. Pigs? Pigs are mean. Pigs are really mean. Not only will they trample your pearls, but pigs will turn around and attack you. You don't want to be on the receiving end of what a pig or a hog has to give you. So Jesus is making a point that may feel a little bit uncomfortable to us in our 2022 world of everything has to be fair for everybody all the time. He's making this macro point that not everybody gets to experience the blessings of God, that there are blessings that are reserved only for followers of Jesus. There are the elect and there are the non-elect. Everybody in the world gets to experience common grace that comes from the Lord. We experience that when we're outside, 
We experience that in the way people love each other. But not everybody gets to experience the blessings the believers get to experience. And God wouldn't be just if that wasn't true. If there was any other way, we wouldn't have a fully loving and fully just God. For God to be just and loving means there are those that will be in faith and there are those that will not. There will be people who will actively trample the gospel and its message. There are those who will actively fight against the word of God. And it's more than just a a mere rejection. Oh, I don't believe that. It's absolute hatred for things that are holy. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. We are a fragrance of death to death to those who are not in faith, but those who are in faith life to life. You see, when the gospel is reviled, when Christians are actively hated, we have to shake off the dust and we have to move on. We need to judge, to discern, to to use our intellect that God has given us to evaluate the situation. And instead of tossing more holy things at it, instead of throwing our pearls before the hatred, we can leave. We can move on. Because we're not responsible for the conversion of others. God ultimately is. We are to share the gospel, and if our peace is received, we keep sharing. And if it's not, just like we're going to study later in Matthew 10, 13 through 14, he says, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. It's not a cop-out. This isn't a cop-out for fulfilling the Great Commission. You are commanded to do that. The point is, you can't beat people over the head with God's holy word. You can't keep tossing God's holy word at people who will trample under it. You plant seeds, and you pray for good soil, and if your peace isn't returned, then you move on, judging, discerning, evaluating potentially criticizing, giving feedback, but never self-righteously, never beating them over the head with a book saying, I don't understand. I mean, we can think in our heads, I understand why you don't believe this. This life is full of joy and gladness and goodness. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But we're not responsible for bringing people to faith. We're responsible for carrying the, God, the godly message, the gospel message, and God, through the Spirit, cuts into people's hearts and brings them to faith. As we wrap up, I want us to think about a few things because there's a ton to chew on here today. We are to be discerning people. We are to use the wisdom that God has given us to make decisions as citizens of Christ's kingdom. We we use this godly wisdom to discern what hills we need to fight on, how to fight on those hills, and what hills we're not supposed to fight on. We use this to to know where we are to provide criticism and feedback and where we need to shake off the dust and and boogie. We need to know how to use judgment in kingdom-appropriate ways. But none of it is possible if we're doing it with a self-righteous and a haughty heart. None of this is possible if we are in a place of condemning other people. That's why I chuckle a little bit at the beginning of that story I shared with Sophia. Part of being a parent is criticizing your kids. It's judging their behavior. 
It's providing feedback. It's evaluating. Constructive criticism is helpful. It's building up what should be built up and tearing down what should be torn down. It's making judgments and decisions that are in their best interest. But there are humble ways to do this, and there are self-righteous ways to do this. And I have done both. Just ask my children. They will be more than happy to tell you about the times when I do this from a self-righteous place instead of a humble place, instead of a place with a meek heart and a loving heart. Instead, I can get, at times, a condemning heart, just like all of us. And you know where I never get any traction, especially with the kids or others? Is if I'm self-righteous. It never, ever works out. But when I approach things with humility and grace and meekness and patience, the results are different. The experience is different. This is why heeding Jesus' warning and his commands are so important. These are commands for a reason. They are commands because the remind, it's a reminder for us at who the ultimate, on who the ultimate judge is, the one that all of us will answer to, the ultimate just and righteous judge. That's why we must be actively confessing and repenting from our sins every day, constantly. We must be aware of the desires of our sinful hearts because without that, we can't be humble and we can't be meek. Without understanding our own sin, we can't understand the grace and mercy that God freely gives us, and we can't extend it to other people. It's only through these things, through understanding and being convicted of our own sin, that we will be able to extend grace and mercy and peace and love to others. That is what it looks like taking the log out of our own eye. And we must do this before we do anything else. It's only after that that we can humbly and meekly approach others and then provide the feedback and the judgments and the criticism and the evaluation that is needed. It's only then that we can faithfully deal with conflict and fight against the powers that we have been called to fight against. Don't mistake it for one moment. You are all, we are all called to be soldiers in Christ's army. And we are. And we fight. But we fight with a different set of tools than the pagans do. We have different weapons attached to us than the pagans do. That's why we don't give our holy things to dogs and we don't let our pearls be trampled by swine and then get attacked afterwards. So I implore you to always evaluate yourself and your sin and to use the wisdom, the wisdom that can only come from God, to make judgments for his kingdom and his kingdom alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and our ability to join together here and study it. Lord, we pray as we leave this space and we go into your kingdom to interact with believers and unbelievers, that we are people that are constantly confessing our sins and checking our hearts. Lord, we know that we, we slip and we sin and we, we fall into places of pride and self-righteousness, and so I just pray that if we're even on the edge, the lip, the edge of falling into that pit, that we pray to you, that we are convicted of our own sin, that we confess our own sin, that we repent from our own sin, so that we can approach any conflict, any criticism that is needed to give with humility and meekness. Lord, let us be a light on a hill. Let us be a light to everyone that we meet. And may we gloriously continue to build your kingdom for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.